Hey everyone, on the podcast today we have Demetrius Walker. You can find him at DemetriusWalker.com, on Instagram at VoteForMeek, that's M-E-E-K, or Meekonomics uh, on Instagram, and at Facebook.com slash TheRealMeek. Towards the end of the podcast, Demetrius talks about why Meek is his nickname. Okay, more about Demetrius. Uh, He is the director of the North Houston Economic Development Center at Lone Star College. So for all you business owners and entrepreneurs out there, his knowledge and insights can be hugely beneficial for you, not just if you are in the greater Houston area. He is an entrepreneur himself, which we dig into later in the podcast. He is a published author and about to publish his second book at the time of recording. He is a published, uh, excuse me, he is a professional keynote speaker and even DJs in his spare time. Demetrius has an incredibly interesting story of how he took advantage of every unique opportunity that has come his way and continues to do so. From growing up in New York City to attending one of the most prestigious boarding schools in the country, if not the world, and later after graduating from Vanderbilt University, starting a clothing company and even a record company that produced a produced for a Grammy-winning artist. This is one of the most wide-ranging podcasts we have ever done, but it is certainly not random events that we just somehow just to somehow happen and we tried to tie them all together to make sense. Demetrius' drive and relentless pursuit of self-education and capturing every opportunity that has come his way is the common thread that ties all these eclectic experiences together. While you are listening, please send us a rating and a review. This helps us grow our listener base, which is already across the country and on four continents. That's crazy. This helps us reach more listeners that could benefit from the content and the podcast and helps our guests get more of the great things they are doing out there to more people as well. Share this on your social media platform with your pals and buddies. Tell them how much you like the podcast and that they should uh, subscribe, they should download, and they should listen too. Oh, uh, one more thing. Listener questions. Send those questions to elizabeth at eversoncooper.com. Use the subject line, ask ESC podcast, or message us at facebook.com slash eversoncooper and use the hashtag ask ESC podcast. If you need to hear more of our podcast, check out our archive at eversoncooper.com slash podcast, or you can find it in iTunes, uh, the Apple podcast app, uh, and on Spotify. Just search Everson Cooper. Okay, back to Demetrius. We enjoyed ourselves, and we hope you do too. So, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Demetrius Walker. Welcome to the Everson Cooper Podcast. We are entrepreneurs that are interested in what makes people successful. In this podcast, we sit down with a wide range of people with diverse perspectives and backgrounds. We dive into the obstacles that they've had to overcome, their successes, unique experiences, and everything in between. Our goal is to continuously learn from those around us and share their knowledge so that we can all find something that makes us better and makes those around us better. We hope you enjoy. Demetrius, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for spending your evening with us. Oh, man. I, there's no place I'd rather be right now. Oh, good deal. Good deal. Um, so we've got a lot to talk about. You have a fascinating background. You are not an old guy by any stretch of the imagination, but you have, if you put together your CV or your resume or whatever, you've got a lot of interesting and awesome 
things that could fill up a biography or autobiography and you already have an autobiography <laughs> so we're already we're we're good on that yes, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely get into that uh, but for our listeners I kind of want to start off with what you're doing now and the passion that you have for what you are doing now and then we'll we'll kind of rewind a little bit and dig into how you got here and all of the stuff that you carry with you in your briefcase per se um, that helps you, you know, do what you do and be successful now. So currently, you are the director of the North Houston Economic Development Center at Lone Star College. That's right. Yes, sir. So anyone who's listening to this podcast uh, who is an entrepreneur, who is a business owner in Houston, in the North Houston area, in the Woodlands where we are recording at, uh, at this time, uh, what you're doing is probably pretty interesting and pretty important to, to those people. So talk about what you do, talk about kind of the, the mission and the goals of what your, you know, your day to day, and then also, you know, the, you know, the greater impact. Okay. So if anyone ever remembers, uh, the game SimCity mm. where, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of building up a city and you're putting businesses in certain places and, you know, the right, uh, amenities and different areas and watching the city build and grow. That's basically what my job is now. So, you know, I have the 50,000-foot viewpoint, and I look at the North Houston area, particularly unincorporated Harris County, uh, which, by the way, if unincorporated Harris County was its own city, would be the fifth largest city in the country. Wow. Just, just the unimpor- unincorporated parts that's of, crazy. of Harris County. Um, that's not even including the city of Houston itself. Um, 2.4 million people and growing. Um, people are flocking to this area at an unprecedented rate from inside the country, from outside the country. And so what that means is there's a lot of room and opportunity for economic growth and development. Uh, we have uh, businesses that uh, you know can use the space that we have here in the North Houston area. Uh, we have businesses who need an educated workforce. And so that's how it coincides with Lone Star College is that we prepare the workforce that's necessary to help the North Houston area grow. Um, so that's all tied in. And there's just so many different opportunities for businesses that are located all over the country, all over the world, to come to this area to provide jobs to our community um, and to really help grow our economic base. And it's really exciting. So what is your interface like with business owners, large or small? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you might be interfacing with big corporations that are thinking about moving, uh, you know, a regional headquarters here or their headquarters here or anything like that. Uh, and you might also, you know, a, a sole proprietor entrepreneur who's, you know, got a couple pennies in the bank and is looking to grow their business. Talk about that. Um, how do you interact with those type of businesses? Right. So I'm mostly now focused on uh, the larger businesses. Mm -hmm. I was working with the smaller businesses for the Small Business Development Center previously. Uh, But right now, what would happen is uh, a company is considering a relocation or uh, the city of Houston might have reached out to a company that's overseas or somewhere else in the country just to sell them on, you know, what we have going on here in Mm -hmm. Houston and that will typically go to the governor's office. And they'll look at the governor's office and they'll ask the governor, hey, all right, show us what you got. Um, the governor's office might send the lead down to the Greater Houston Partnership, um, whose job is to 
help the entire region grow economically. Um, the Greater Houston Partnership says, well, you know what? That sounds like it might be a, a great business for the North Houston area based on this, the amount of space you need, based on your power requirements, based on the workforce that you need. Um, then it gets kicked up to me here in the North Houston area. And so my job would be to, you know, do a demographic study, um, do all kind of studies to show and prove to these companies that, hey, this is where you need to be. There's no better place in America right now to be. And this is where it is. And that's my job to show them what we have. So you you just mentioned it, actually, because you you were a, a prior to this position that you, you've only been in just for a short period of time. Right. Uh, but the position previous kind of leads into what you're doing now. And you were a business consultant um, right. for I'm going to. Uh, forget what I'm saying here, uh, the Small Business Development Center at Lone Star College, you yes, were a business sir. consultant. And so you kind of talked about you you interfaced more with the small businesses there. Right. So w- w- the obvious contrast is, you know, you're dealing with larger corporations and you're dealing with, you know, with the, uh, you know, the, the Houston partnership, uh, Houston City Partnership and, uh, you know, the governor's office on this, on the smaller side of what you were doing before. What were some of the things that, um, you know, were your goals there? Yeah. Uh, what were some of the things that you did that um, prepared you for what you're doing now? Because, I mean, it's, it is different, though, going from small businesses, again, you know, mom and pop shop like me and Elizabeth have here, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, ExxonMobil or Google or Amazon or whatever. Right. So make no mistake, I still have a passion for assisting small yeah. business owners. Um, small businesses create the most jobs in our economy. And so... Uh, you know, this is still all tied together. Um, you know, we look at small businesses that have opportunities. We're also trying to attract them to the Houston area. You know, if they have unique products or ideas that we think will thrive in our economy, we certainly want to attract them as well. Um, but in my previous role, I was working in the trenches day to day with small business owners just like yourself on whatever it is that they needed to not only uh, get their businesses started, but to remain in business, to stay viable, to grow their business, to get to the point where they can hire more employees, um, where they can attract more revenue, um, grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. Um, It was my job to help them, whether it be in marketing, um, coming up with a plan to deal with social media, Mm -hmm. because social media is so rapidly evolving, Um, or, you know, whether it was capital formation, uh, whether it was HR uh, assistance, consulting, um, on you know what kind of employees they need to be looking for and what kind of skill sets they need to attract to their business. Um, so I'm still very passionate about that. I work uh, hand in hand with the Small Business Development Center um, still to this day. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know it's not something that's ever going to go away and not something that I'm ever not going to be passionate sure. about. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of obvious reasons for people that are here in Houston and you know if someone someone and actually I have listeners. Uh, all over the place, which is crazy. Um, uh, if people are thinking or listening to this and saying, well, what the heck? Why is What makes Houston so great? Why are so many people flocking to Houston? And I mean, Texas in general, but yeah. especially Houston. Uh, are, are, I mean, are there incentives going on? I mean, of course, you know, the weather is you know, pretty good with the exception of the summers. <laughs> uh, so talk about uh, more on your level, you know, the data that you work with and things like that. What makes Houston such an attractive place for businesses, large and small? Uh, there's a number of reasons. It's, uh, our workforce is first and foremost, 
very educated and qualified. Um, so that makes this, this area extremely attractive. Uh, on top of the fact that we have so many businesses that already exist here, which are major corporations, major multinational corporations. Um, this is the energy capital of the world, not just the United States, but the entire world, Houston is. And so when you consider that and the fact that we're diversifying the types of businesses that we're attracting here mm -hmm. on a regular basis, uh, people are starting to realize, wow, you know, not only do they have uh, great weather in December, uh, you know, we don't have on winter coats right now, uh, but the fact of the matter is it's a very low cost of living in comparison yeah. to any other major city in the United States. Uh, we don't have a state income tax. Um, there's so many different benefits to, to being in the Houston area. And the fact that Houston has grown by leaps and bounds just in the last decade alone, you know, when I got here in 2007, uh, I came at the height of the construction craze in Houston. There were cranes everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's still really the city's been expanding out in every single direction, mm -hmm. north, south, east and west at the same pace for the last decade. And so that's very attractive, very cool place to be. If you're a young employee, a young entrepreneur, um, you know, Houston keeps being ranked in all the top magazines. Forbes is one of the coolest places to live. Mm. So why wouldn't you want to be in Houston? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, where else would you be? Great. So many times I, uh, you know, I'll read whether it's in a you know, newspaper or you know, reported Forbes or, or whatever um, of cities that are losing population or areas, states right. that are losing population that are getting essentially getting older with the population their workforce isn't as highly educated um as as houston's is and, and texas so uh, what from your experience um do other places do other cities and if you mm -hmm. have some in some specific examples i know this is kind of off the cuff yeah. uh, that are like gosh these guys are getting it wrong like if they could just do a couple of these things man this place could be really really good yeah. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that because, because it might, but people that are here in Houston, it might seem easy. Like, yeah, energy capital of the world, great, uh, great weather. And, you know, mm -hmm. in the wintertime, you know, very diverse city as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that might seem pretty easy, but if, if a city doesn't have that going for them, what can a city potentially do to get their population back Get you know, get the, so they don't have brain drain, things like that. Yeah. You know, it, you, you hit it on the head. Um, we're the most diverse city in America. I don't think pe a lot of people realize that. That I did not know. We're the most diverse city in America. Um, okay. And, I'm, and I, I say this coming from New York City, which in New York, you can meet people from all walks of life. Uh, but we have so many people here from Asia, from Africa, from South America, uh, Central America, as well as the rest of the United States. And so the diversity, I think, is something that's really attractive to people and it brings people here. Um, but for cities, let's, we can even compare ourselves to Chicago, okay. you know, um, we're about to leapfrog Chicago in terms of being the third largest city in the United States. Why is a city like Chicago losing people? Uh, why are cities like Detroit losing people, St. Louis losing people? Mm -hmm. uh, I have a feeling it's, you know, first and foremost, uh, those cities are a bit more segregated in terms of uh, the layout. Interesting. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, quite a bit. Chicago in particular, you know, uh, just historically, Chicago comes from an era where redlining was the norm in real estate. Mm -hmm. and so the city is actually very segregated. People don't really interact with each other. Um, and so they feel isolated. 
They want to go to a place where they feel included. Yeah. Houston is a place where you can feel very included no matter where you are, whether you're in the woodlands, whether you're down in Sugarland, whether you're in Galveston, the entire region, you will see people from all walks of life and you'll feel welcome. Southern hospitality has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that attracted me to the area. Mm-hmm. Growing up in New York is very cutthroat. You encounter thousands of people a day, whether you're on a subway, wherever you're going, and you just want them all to leave you alone. <laughs> uh, you get to Houston, everyone's so friendly. Yeah. You know, it's such a comfortable place to live and a comfortable place to exist. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. our culture, yeah. I would say, is different. So back up one second. I want you to define redlining. Mm-hmm. Um, I I, I have a pretty good idea, but if anyone's listening out there that isn't familiar with that, talk real quickly about that. Yeah, so you know, going back to the 1940s and 50s, uh, there were policies that were set in place to determine who qualified for uh, FHA loans mm-hmm. um, and what neighborhoods qualified mm-hmm. to receive those kind of funds. And um, specifically, this was used to segregate neighborhoods um, you know, based on race, based on income. And this created severe inequality, which we're seeing persist to this day in Chicago. So when you hear about that city, you'll see there are just certain areas and pockets of the city which seem to be dysfunctional, which seem to have much higher crime and murder rates than other parts of the city that are insulated from it. Um, And so that was all the government policy um, in the city of Chicago, which has created that and which, you know, they're still struggling with to this day. So what, yeah, and actually that's a, the good thing that you brought up is policy because that's also something a city can naturally have a lot of things great going for it. Again, I'll, you know, emphasize Houston energy capital world. You can't, um, you know, regulate or, or put a policy in for X amount of days of sunshine or, you know, you know, heat or whatever. What are some, what are some maybe, so let's talk, let's talk about Houston. What are some good things that Houston has done over the years policy wise mm-hmm. that have, uh, positively impacted uh, you know, the greater you know, city of Houston? Well, you know, one of the unique things about the city of Houston is the fact that we don't really have many zoning restrictions. Yeah. People can put a, you know, you, you see an area that's ideal, uh, it, it's very inexpensive, put a business there. Nobody's going to stop you. Yep. Um, so, you know, you don't really have as many restrictions in terms of your freedom of mobility um, and freedom of operation in your business um, in this metropolitan area. And I think that's been very critical for the growth and success and the outward expansion. You know, we're talking about the city of Houston, the metropolitan footprint of Houston, 660 square miles. Outside of that, the entire region, if we look at from the woodlands to Sugarland, you're talking about 1,400 square miles. All right. That's Enormous. Crazy. Yeah. So that's we're big. This is bigger than the state of Delaware itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, it's bigger than the state of I Delaware. Believe it. Oh my gosh! And that expansion has been fueled by the fact that there's no zoning restrictions. Mm-hmm. You can build wherever you want to. Yeah, man, that's fascinating. I, I kind of become very much a nerd when it, when we talk about things like this because I'm just I'm super fascinated by it. Uh, but I think we'll spare our listeners from getting <laughs> into this. I, I think we could have just a podcast about. Just this. Definitely. And, and actually, I think that might be a good idea. Uh, so if anyone's listening out there, well, of course, people are listening. But uh, listeners, if you guys uh, like this, let us know. And I mean, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have you back and we'll talk even more about this. Sure. But I do want to transition into more about you individually because this is also incredibly fascinating. You're an entrepreneur. Um, you're 
uh, you're an author, you, um, are, you know, a record producer, uh, I mean, just tons, tons of stuff going on, uh, and it's all incredibly fascinating. And so you had mentioned this um, in, in kind of setting this up about why you moved to Houston. Uh, you're originally from New York, you're yep. from the Northeast, so let's back up a little bit. Um, talk about some of your, your formidable years. Uh, I know you went to the Taft School, yes, sir. Um, incredibly prestigious school for anyone uh, who who knows. Just look it up on Wikipedia. Of like ambassadors and Pulitzer Prize winners, um, like artists and musicians, incredibly mm-hmm. successful businessmen, and Demetrius Walker <laughs> <laughs> that I'm went to yes. the Taft School. Uh, so talk about you know that that time in your life. Um, you have to already have been an incredibly driven person. Uh, prepared person to even get into the Taft School and thrive there. So let's talk about you know kind of going back to to that your you know your time growing up in New York and then you know then you know kind of maturing on from there. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I'll I'll go all the way back. I grew up in New York City during what was called the crack era. Um, it was a very crazy time in New York. You know, almost like the Wild Wild West. You know, I can tell you stories for days. I, I've seen a guy running down the middle of the street, naked, being chased by a helicopter um, <laughs> in Brooklyn, New York. Yes. Uh, you know, so I got tons of stories like that. You know, um, homicides, murders, uh, assaults, you know, all kind of things I witnessed mm-hmm. um, before I was 15 years old in New York. And so, you know, seeing that and coming from that environment, I always wanted more for myself. And my parents always wanted more for me as well. And so I was always driven. I knew that education was my way out. You know, I didn't want to end up in the same position that I'd seen some of my friends and family members end up in. And so I was always very competitive when it came to education. I was like, that's how I'm going to prove, you know, to the world that not only am I um, worthy of success, but, you know, this was just a personal, um, you know, kind of decision I made that I, I wanted to compete with the best of the best worldwide. And so, I found out about this concept of boarding school while I was in middle school. And I found out this is where the ambassadors send their children. This is where billionaires send their children and the smartest kids in the, in the world uh, go to these types of schools. And I said, you know what? I want to compete with them. Yeah. I'm going to figure out how to get there. You know, these institutions cost more than most colleges mm-hmm. do. You know, the TAP school at the time, you're talking about $40,000 a year tuition, mm-hmm. you know, in 1996. <laughs> you know, when I enrolled. Um, And there's no way my family could have afforded it. So I knew I had to work that much harder to try to qualify to get, you know, some academic scholarships Mm -hmm. or some type of financial assistance. And so I was able to do that and um, enjoyed my experience at the TAP school. I was able to finally focus just on being in school and not having to, you know, watch my back, worry about somebody robbing me or, you know, trying to do some type of harm to me, um, I was able to finally just learn mm-hmm. and, and, and have new experiences and play new sports I never thought I would play. I play lacrosse, I play hockey, um, you know, play squash, you know, stuff I'd never even heard of in New York <laughs> City. And uh, so that was a fantastic experience. Um, and, and no matter how much I loved being in New England at Taft, I just couldn't get over the cold weather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, get it. Uh, yeah, you know, so my favorite sport was baseball. And we would go down to Florida for spring break, Fort Myers, mm-hmm. every year uh, with the baseball team for a week. 
And then we have to come back to Connecticut. And a lot of times it was still snow in April in Connecticut. Um, it was just, it was always dreary. Uh, you know, you imagine London just always being cloudy mm-hmm. and, you know, misty. I, and I just, you know, I got sick of it. Um, I remember my last year there, we had a big snowstorm. We got about three feet of snow. And a lightning bolt hit the transformer right behind my dorm. And I saw it. And it was just this big explosion. There's snow everywhere. And I was like, I'm done. I, that's it. I've seen it's enough. Over. This is a sign from God. I that's need it. to get away from the Northeast. And, no, you know, decided to look at schools down south. Uh, Vanderbilt University invited me to come in to visit the campus for a weekend. They had uh, what was known as a, it was a black student recruitment weekend at the time. Um, and so, you know, I, in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to go to this place, Nashville. It sounds like country and, you know, I don't <laughs> like country music. I like hip hop. And, uh, but they were paying for it. Yeah, yeah. So I decided to go down and visit. And, uh, you know, quickly learned that, you know, Nashville is a pretty cool college town. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just Vanderbilt University there. It was Tennessee State University, Fisk University. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of opportunities for me to interact with other gifted um, black students Mm -hmm. who were just in school to learn. And um, I really liked what I saw. Decided to go with Vanderbilt. Yeah. Yeah. So... Which, if anyone knows Vanderbilt, that's not an easy school to get into either. That, that's a very, very prestigious mm-hmm. school. It's within a top itself. twenty school. Top yeah. twenty school. I think we might be a top ten school now. So. Yeah, yeah, and a great baseball team too. Yes. Yeah. In the national championship a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah. I, I went to school with David Price. Okay. Oh no way. Yeah, he, right. he was at yeah. Vanderbilt while I was there. Yeah, just won the yeah. World Series. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh man, we could talk baseball. <laughs> yeah. Tons. Yeah. All right. I'll, we'll we'll spare we'll spare you guys. So while you're at. Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. you meet some interesting guys, yeah, um, and you form a you know a, a friendship, and ultimately you know after Vanderbilt you form you know a partnership. You guys essentially go into business together. Uh, so talk about that. Uh, maybe bring it into the context of the four years you were there, yeah, uh, yeah. and your experience at Vanderbilt, and then kind of then the impetus for you know, going into business. So, yeah, at Vanderbilt, I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha, which is the first black Greek letter organization. And the the reason this organization was even formulated in the first place at Cornell University was because uh, the black students that were there at the time didn't feel they had a support system um, of people who would, you know, give them good advice, uh, look out for each other, help each other with their classwork when it was difficult to keep up. And so... You know, coming to Vanderbilt, even though Nashville, very diverse city in terms of college uh, students, um, Vanderbilt University at the time I was there was less than 5% black. So, you know, it was necessary to have that support network. Um, You know, I joined a fraternity and those guys are still my brothers to this day. You know, we still do business together. Mm -hmm. We still hang out with each other. Um, That's another part of the reason I ended up in Houston, by the way. Um, but after undergrad, you know, going through this experience, I went into corporate America, uh, working for Dell and, uh, you know, I had, uh, wasn't really sure what to expect in corporate America, except for the fact that I knew I needed to make money and I was sick of eating ramen noodles. (laughs) And so I worked my butt off 
and was doing pretty well selling computers to, to small and medium businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, sold about $12 million worth of equipment my first year. Um, after my first year, I started to notice people disappearing all around me. You know, I would come to work every day and somebody's desk would just be cleared off and, you know, just no explanation. They just wouldn't be there. And, you know, one day my manager finally said, hey, Demetrius, you know, do you like working here? I'm like, you know, yeah, you know, I'm making decent money. Sure. And so uh, she said, well, do you want to continue to work here? And I'm like, yeah, of course. You know, I hadn't been applying to any other jobs or anything. And so she said, well, you know, the uh, what time do we open doors here? And I said, you know, 7 a.m. And she said, well, what time do we close? And I said, 8 p.m. And she said, think about that. I was there struggling. I'm like, what is she trying to tell me? And it took me about a few hours, and I was like, oh, oh, they want me to work overtime. Okay. And so, you know, I started working every day, 13 hours a day, uh, Monday through Saturday, six days a week. And, you know, started working myself to death, uh, started hallucinating about computers. (laughs) And uh, it was uh, it, it was wearing on me and I didn't feel appreciated um, I felt uh, I was still being micromanaged despite the fact that I was bringing in anywhere between 12 and $20 million a year for the company. And I decided at that point that I didn't want to push buttons for somebody else for the rest of my life. And so uh, one of my fraternity brothers, Trey, he was still an undergrad. He made clothes for the Greeks on campus at Vanderbilt as well as Tennessee State and Fisk. And I uh, was chatting with him just about his talent and knowledge in the fashion industry. You know, I guess, I don't know if it was a fashion industry, he was just making clothes for Greeks, but, you know, he knew how to get it done. And then he started telling me about a class that he was in, a black masculinity class, uh, where the topic of discussion was A. Philip Randolph, um, who was considered by President Woodrow Wilson to be the most dangerous Negro in America back in 1919 because he was trying to integrate the military, was segregated at the time. Uh, He started one of the country's first labor unions, agitated a lot of politicians. Um, And I said, man, this this is pretty interesting. You know, what else did you learn? And so he said, uh, well, A. Philip Randolph actually, you know, came up with that idea to have a march on Washington in the 1940s um, to demand the end of segregation. But World War II broke out, so he never got a chance to do it. And uh, he did plant the seed in Dr. King's head, in Dr. Martin Luther King's head. So Dr. King consequently conducts a march on Washington in 1963. And J. Edgar Hoover despised Dr. Martin Luther King, had it in for him, sends a field agent out to observe the march on Washington, uh, William C. Sullivan. William C. Sullivan writes an unfavorable report of Dr. King, and in that report calls him the most dangerous Negro in America. Um, then this term comes up again after Malcolm X departs from the Nation of Islam, um, visits Mecca, comes back to the United States, denounces the Nation of Islam and says uh, he wants to start a voting block. And this is how he's you know, planning to uh, influence the policies of the U.S. government that he felt were unjust. He was labeled the most dangerous Negro in America, and, and shortly thereafter he was assassinated. Uh, the Black Panther Party, same thing. Um, you know, COINTELPRO was formulated specifically because they were listed as the most dangerous Negroes in America. 
dismantled. Uh, their leaders were assassinated strategically. And that organization descended into the Bloods and Crips in Los Angeles um, in large part. And so just seeing that trend, I said, man, we got to do something about this. There's a lot of history people don't know about. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the general public, you know, regardless of race, class, gender, color, they need to know this story and they need to constantly have it on their minds. And so I said, Trey, you know how to make clothes. Let's start a clothing line. We're going to call it Dangerous Negro. And, uh, you know, of course, everybody thought that was insane. Uh, and uh, lots of people discouraged us from doing so. Uh, however, it was a name that people couldn't forget. Mm-hmm. And um, as a result, we got a lot of press coverage out the gate. Um, lots of people started, college students initially, started buying our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when e-commerce was really starting to take off. People were purchasing things on a computer, and they weren't afraid to put their credit card in <laughs> anymore. And that worked to our benefit. And, um, you know, it evolved into multiple other ventures from there. So actually, just curious. So when you guys started um, putting, started online, what was the platform you guys used for e-commerce? We used uh, a company called Spreadshirt. Okay. Um, and Spreadshirt is still in existence to this day. Um, they haven't evolved very much. But what we did was uh, we bought our web domain, linked it to our Spreadshirt store. And Spreadshirt is a site where they will press up individual shirt orders. We didn't have to have any minimums for mm-hmm. inventory. And uh, if someone orders uh, a black shirt with red writing, they would make that one shirt, ship it out for us. We didn't have to touch it. We just get our commission yeah, okay. and you know keep it moving. Yeah. But because of that, of course, they extracted a very high fee uh, for doing so. But the good the advantage was we didn't have to really invest a lot up front in inventory. Yeah. Sure. So it kept your overhead low. Yeah, yeah. kept yeah. the overhead very okay. low. So okay. yeah. So yeah, I mean that's at least good. You were starting out on the branding side, yeah. trying to you know get the, get the marketing out there, trying to get the name out there. Yeah. So okay, I don't want to divert too much because yeah. I love I love the story. I love um, the history behind it. I'm a, I'm a history guy. I have a history major or mm-hmm. a history degree, I should say. Um, and so I love understanding how things you know, come about because if someone without having this, this context, uh, could see the name of the company and be like, Oh my gosh, Oh boy, that's, that's just, you know, like right, you said, right, right. um, and I think I heard, you know, you talking, you, you even mentioned it to you know, the, the name to your mom and yeah. your mom was like, Oh no, that's, that's just a bad idea. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah. And so I love understanding the history behind things and, and where the, the name, the meaning, the mission, everything comes from. And it is incredibly fascinating. Uh, the the meaning behind the name of the company Dangerous Negro. So okay, I want to go. I want to continue down this down this road because starting out the company, um, you you're there you're with with your friend Trey, and you guys actually bring some other guys you know into the yeah. fold. And you guys, st- I mean, you start to grow. Mm-hmm. You start to grow. You know, grow pretty quickly. Just not only in Nashville but in other places, and it kind of leads to um, uh, and something we'll get to, but um, uh, Rhymefest. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think what he was wearing one of your uh, jackets that you guys ended up designing on on his cover or whatever. Yeah, so let me tell you a story behind that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, well, I, for everyone who doesn't know who Rhymefest is, Rhymefest uh, he won a Grammy. He wrote a lot of Kanye West's first four albums. He's you know if you ever look at the album credits on albums, people don't really do that anymore because we just download stuff. 
Uh, but back in the day, you know, you buy an album, you look at the album credits, and you see all the writers that are listed on the song, who produced the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rhymefest wrote a lot of Kanye West's initial material. Um, you know, when when Kanye West won a Grammy for writing Jesus Walks, Kanye, uh, Rhymefest, you know, won the Grammy for mm-hmm. writing Jesus Walks because mm-hmm. he's the writer of that song. Um, my business partner, Gary, as you mentioned, we did expand. We added five other business partners. And one of them was a guy by the name of Gary up in Indianapolis who happened to go to high school with my fraternity brother, Sebastian, in Zimbabwe. Um, and so they just were, you know, remained really close. And, you know, Gary uh, settled in the United States up in Indiana. And Gary, uh, you know, loves to be in a club. Uh, you know, like many of us did, and he would just always be there and always carry T-shirts with him just mm-hmm. in case he ran into a celebrity in the club. Yeah. And so one night, runs into Rhymefest, and Rhymefest is like, man, I, I really like your, your shirt, you know? And Gary's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm one of the founders. You know, I, I get you a whole bunch of shirts, you know, here, take this one. And, you know, gives it to Rhymefest, and, you know, Rhymefest is on tour with Kanye at mm-hmm. the time. And Kanye loved the shirts, and they're like, yeah, we need to get more of these. And so we start supplying them with T-shirts for their tour. And, um, you know, it required us to be on the phone with them a lot, yeah. you know, to figure out where they are. Where, where are you going to be next? Or we'll ship you some shirts. And as we built that relationship, we started to discover that he was unsatisfied with his record deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't feel he had creative control over his own projects. And there was a lot of pressure from the record label to you know, go mainstream and and do things that he just, you know, didn't stand for. And uh, upon discovering this, you know, the idea came about uh, starting an independent record label. You know, people were starting to do this. People were starting to, you know, sell their own music through the Internet and not have to rely on big record labels to do it. And so we floated the idea. We figured out how much capital would be required to do something like this. And the number we settled on was about 80 grand. We figured, you know, 80 grand we can, you know, produce, mm-hmm. uh, market an album and recoup our money. You know, that was the minimum. And so, uh, you know, based on some of the capital we had stored up from the T-shirt company, uh, we'd also won a business plan competition um, through uh, Miller Coors Brewing Company, uh, which helped us uh, with some additional capital, 25K. Uh we went ahead and said, we're going to start a record label. We got a Grammy Award winning artist. And we did it. You know, people were like, how the hell did you <laughs> do this? You know, you got yeah. a Grammy Award winner. Um, going to the album cover, you know, we flew up to Chicago a few times. That's where uh, Ryan Fest is from. Um, grew up there with, with Kanye West. And the first time I met Ryan Fest, he saw my jacket and he was like, I need that jacket. <laughs> that, that's it. I need the jacket. And so I gave him the jacket off my back, yeah. and he loved it so much. He wore it everywhere. Um, he ended up wearing it for the, the album cover. Yeah, yeah. And um, so if you get the album and you open up the album cover and see the, the little photo shoot in there, you'll see my jacket. You'll see other Dangerous Negro shirts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm listed as an executive producer on a project, which means I didn't actually create the music myself but i directed the music and i decided which song should end up on the album Mm -hmm. and funded the project so that's what an executive producer does in case people don't know (laughs) 
So talk a little bit more about that because that just fascinates me. You essentially go from, you know, having this apparel brand um, and then you, you have this opportunity and, and, and I don't want to marginalize, but it like almost falls in your lap. Yeah. And you're like, okay, man, let's figure this out. Right. And so you guys figure it out and you make the investment. And I mean, it right there, it takes some uh, smart business, you know, some business savvy to be able to one, figure it out, but then two, pull it off and, and execute it. So you guys do. So the album is Elche. Elche, um, yes. Is Rhymefest's album, uh, what, 2011, 2010? 2010. 2010. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so talk about that process. How involved were you still with Dangerous Negro Apparel? Mm-hmm. And then how involved were you, I mean, you alluded to it a little bit, how involved were you with making the album and you know, helping to produce the record? And talk, I mean, talk a little bit about that. Like, take us back to that, that time. Yeah, and yeah. How, how awesome, how crazy it was, just stressful, you know, whatever. It was crazy, man, because uh, not only were we still doing a t-shirt company, mm-hmm. all of us were still working full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then we had brought this project on. So what we did was we kind of divided the team in half. And I had some business partners who just focused on the T-shirt side, mm-hmm. um, whereas uh, me, Gary, my partner Sebastian, uh, my partner Justin, and Trey, we focused on the music side. And, um, you know, honestly, I think we were just young enough and dumb enough and naive enough <laughs> to think that we could do this. Sure. And I think that worked to our benefit, yeah, yeah. because if we would have really um, assessed with an adult mind... The, the difficulty and the scale of doing something like this, we probably wouldn't have did it, yeah. you know. Um, but, you know, we were in our 20s at the time, and, you know, we weren't going to pass up working with a Grammy Award-winning artist and, you know, being a part of the hip-hop conversation. And so we went for it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we got a lot of recognition. Um, you know, Ink Magazine was like, how the hell did you guys do this? Uh, who are you? Yeah. And reached out to me. And, you know, um, BET had reached out to me previous to that. And everyone was just like, who are these kids? You know, this crazy, insane name for their T-shirt and record label. <laughs> um, and it, it was just an amazing ride. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it differently yeah. if I had to do it all over again. So, so the record label was, was also called Dangerous Negro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So right. it was uh, DNB Apparel, which stands for Dangerous Negro Black Empowerment Apparel, mm-hmm. and then DNB Entertainment. Okay. So. Yeah. 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 Now, how long was that process for put a timestamp on an album was dropped in two thousand ten. Mm-hmm. When, when when did kind of the work start? Uh, and like, I mean, you're 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 up to it, you know, underneath your fingernails working on on those ty- on that type of. How long was that process? So we started in 2009. Um, That's when the project um, originated. And from there, you know, we had to get the recording finished, um, work with a bunch of producers. We had to get features for the album, uh, which was, you know, something that was on my plate. And this is, you know, back when Twitter was first starting to boom. And I was reaching out to people on Twitter and they were actually responding to DMs and messages back then. And... You know, that was all exciting and, and having to reach out to um, magazines for, you know, a press and putting press kits together for South by Southwest in Austin and, uh, you know, getting Rhyme Fest featured on the bill there, um, you know, doing a whole bunch of networking. I, I mean, I literally 
had to pretend that I was already a big record label exec. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what would Barry Gordy do? Okay. Uh, and, you know, fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I was able to, you know, put myself and, and our team into situations that I never would have imagined mm-hmm. um, or probably would have never attempted if it didn't just happen that yeah. way. So, um, <laughs> you know, 2009, album got pushed back a couple times. Uh, was supposed to come out in May of 2010 and uh, then you know a week before its release we find out that no the record label is not well we're the record label but our distribution company Mm -hmm. EMI who a lot of the major record labels use they just didn't feel comfortable and they said you know we we don't feel that you guys have enough buzz on Twitter on Facebook uh, online you know we're just not seeing his name mentioned Mm -hmm. in the digital world enough and we just don't feel comfortable releasing the project we're not going to waste you know pressing up all these discs and sure. nobody's going to buy it and so uh you know now i know why people's albums get pushed back you know sure. i never understood how that happened yeah, yeah. and so you know uh ended up getting released about a month late in june end of june 2010 yeah. so what did you do yeah it, it was just about you know hustling man it's like all right well they want to see more mentions online okay mm-hmm. reaching out to the biggest hip-hop outlets for interviews, mm-hmm. um, you know, publications, and just getting his name mentioned uh, and more buzzworthy mm-hmm. um, until, you know, EMI felt comfortable enough to, to press up 20,000 discs and put it in stores. That takes a lot of, like, grit and, like, <laughs> mental strength to be like, this, you know, album production company just told me, like, basically, we're not doing this because there's not enough out there. Yeah. Right before you think, like, you're all good, you know? Like, you're a week out. You're like, this. it's like, you know, this thing's going to go. Like, we're good to go. It, it's it's so it's, crazy. It's amazing. We, we put out a, a, just to build buzz for the album, we put out a mixtape, um, and we titled the mixtape, it was Dangerous, I think it was Dangerous 517, like the date that it was supposed to come out. Uh-huh. That was the title of the mixtape that we promoted for like a month. And they were like, nah, actually, is nah, we're pushing it back. And we're like, well, that's the title of the mixtape. Everybody's yeah. expecting it to come out. This day, they were like, "We don't care," you know. Wow. So did it keep the title, or what, what happened to the actual title of the mixtape? It no, the, the title of the mixtape stayed the same. It was too late. Okay. Yeah, okay. it was too late. <clears throat> That's funny. Yeah. That's really awesome. All right, so where do you go from there? Uh, so I mean, you know, you're you're still working full time. Mm-hmm. You still have uh, the t-shirt company. Yeah. Um, you just you know created this record label and produced Elche. So it's, you know, you're wrapping up 2010, uh, you're, you're getting into 2011. I mean, what, I mean, are you coming down off the high? What, you know, talk about what, what, what was next, basically, you know? Well, you know, I think all of us in the back of our mind were hoping that this project would be so successful mm-hmm. that we'd all quit our day jobs and, you know, be record label execs and, you know, be world famous. And it didn't happen that way. You know, um, we all had to go back to work. Um, now, the good thing, fortunate thing for me was uh, because I was always the most vocal uh, member of the organization, a lot of schools reached out to me for public speaking. Mm-hmm. I ended up going into public speaking and, uh, you know, speaking across the country, 43 different states. Um, I had an opportunity to travel to Africa, um, just encouraging people to start businesses, you know, consider entrepreneurship. Um, as a career while they're still in college, Mm -hmm. 
instead of waiting until, you know, they're frustrated in corporate America like I was to consider starting a business, you know, really thinking about it, you know, in your sophomore, junior, senior year, um, what type of skills you need and what kind of capital where you're going to get it from to start businesses Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, begin your career as an entrepreneur. And that's what I was passionate about. Um, Ended up traveling on what was called the Extreme Entrepreneurship Tour, uh, which was sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And I linked up with a a good guy named Arel Moody, um, who to this day, that's what he does full time. He's just a public speaker and motivates people Mm -hmm. to start businesses and to, um, you know, be the best they can be. Uh, I was very fortunate to come across these people in my career and link up with them. And, you know, lots of good things happened. I did that for a while. Then I went back to school, got my MBA um decided I wanted to start a nonprofit organization. I wanted to start a boarding school since I went to boarding school mm-hmm. here in Texas mm-hmm. and I wrote a business plan for it. Unfortunately, it was just bad timing. Um, you know, the economy was in a tank. Uh you know, doing really bad and nonprofits especially were not able mm-hmm. to get any grants or any money from anybody. So it just happened to be poor timing and ended up going back into corporate America working again. So who did you? What did you do? You went back. To, you went, went went back to work for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, What did you do for that period of time? So you know, I decided my vision of working. I didn't want to feel that I was working for a company that was either exploiting me or exploiting other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, you know, education seems like a safe area, and so I ended up working for University of Phoenix, uh, and. You know, was very inspired to help people, you know, complete their degrees, people who had dropped out of school uh, for whatever reason and, you know, just really needed to complete their degree and, you know, go on and do bigger and better things. And I did that for a while and, um, you know, kind of, you know, fell out of love with the organization, Um, you know, just some of the practices that I observed, I just, um, you know, just wasn't completely in favor of and, Moved on from there and went into the travel industry. Um, a friend of mine, he was uh, working at this company called Vacations to Go. And literally, he would call me every time he got paid and be like, guess how much my paycheck is? <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, what are you talking about? And he's like, just guess, just guess. And I'm like, you know, what, a couple grand. It's like 10K. I got, oh t- I got 10, 10 grand check. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And, you know, after a few months went by, I was like, all right, this is too much money. I can't ignore it now. And uh, decided to, you know, go work for this company as well. Made a whole bunch of money doing that. But I hated working with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, hated working in a call center. Um, hated being micromanaged, you know, because coming from being a business owner and having the freedom to travel the country as a public speaker. And then I got to be at, at my desk at a certain <laughs> time every day and. My lunch break, if it was a minute late from lunch, you know, drove me crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, ended up leaving there and I started my own travel company called the Black Travel Club, um, which is still in operation and doing very well. Uh, we're at about 120,000 followers on Instagram right now. And uh, the principle behind that, a lot of people say, well, why would you market and name your businesses um, and, and, and pigeonhole yourself and only be able to do business with the black community. 
Um, well, people need to understand that the black community has been so neglected in mm-hmm. every single industry for so long. Um, and there's 43 million black people in this country. <laughs> you know, literally, there's $1 trillion worth of buying power. Uh, you know, we would be one the second or third largest economy, just black people in America, uh, worldwide, if it was its own economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have a problem, you know, marketing to black people. I have all kind of people that come on our trips and that, you know, I love everyone, of course, but I do serve an underserved community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's where, you know, that comes from. But uh, I think if anyone <clears throat> who has some sort of business knowledge or has been in business you you should pick you know where where you go you should say you should know who to say yes to and, and know who to say no to and i mean we have to with our business there's certain things that we you know we'll have opportunities come our way and be like yeah it's just not for us that's just that's just it's just not right so i think yeah if anyone would say oh why are you only marketing to black people i mean you make a great point like dude it's like 43 million people <laughs> right it's a trillion dollars worth of spending spending power like, right but it's not like i'm just you know marketing out there to like 12 people right because there's a ton of people and so yeah I, yeah no I, I think you have to pick your niche you have to be great at it and you cl- you clearly are um because going back to and I and I want to just circle back real quickly to Dangerous Negro. Mm-hmm. The company still exists. Yeah, the company's still, still out there. So so kind of put a bow on that. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, talk if people wanted to go check out the clothes and go, wanted to go buy something, where do they check it out? What how do they um, get all of that? You know all that good stuff. So dangerousnegro.com. Easy enough. Yep, dangerousnegro.com. So my business partner Trey, uh, he operates it full time now. Um, you know, I still provide input here and there, but you know, it's his baby. It was his from the inception. Yep. Um, so, you know, he's also my business partner on a black travel club. You know, he's very tech savvy. Um, he has a Harvard MBA, you know, all of my business partners wow. are extremely educated. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, everyone's skill set comes in handy. You know, my business partner, Justin, you know, he was a city attorney of Atlanta for a while. Um, so, you know, legal work, I didn't have to worry about that stuff. Um, you know, my business partner, Sebastian, who was here in Houston before I moved to Houston, he's the one who convinced me to come visit him for New Year's one year. Uh, you know, he's an engineer or he was an engineer. You know, now he's an executive with a flexible pipeline company, you know, um, all very well-educated people who bring a different skill to the table mm-hmm. um i think it's important for people to realize the power of friendship and networking and you know making sure you have the right friends around you people who compliment you skill wise and educationally mm-hmm. um is critical for your success um so i know i probably just went off on a tangent no, with that. no no i love it but no i love it i can't discount how important that's been yeah yeah all right i want to move on to something that is is by itself is an amazing accomplishment and that's writing a book mm-hmm. um you have an autobiography yep. uh i am a black man the evolution of a dangerous negro right um and so talk a little bit about i mean obviously anyone who's listened to the podcast kind of has an idea of of you know of the autobiography but i guess t- talk about the, the moment in time where you're like, I'm, I'm going to do this. I want to, I want to write this book and kind of what, you know, kept you going through that process because unless you wrote it over a weekend, I imagine it's a long process. You know, you've right. got time where you got to carve out time, early mornings, late nights, you know, whatever writer's block. 
Um, so talk about, you know, the, the inspiration, the motivation to, to do that. And then, and then kind of dig in a little bit to the process, the things that, you know, whether, whether it was just downing a bunch of Red Bulls and just pushing through <laughs> or, you know, like, man, you know, I'm good. I'm, I'm well rested. I've, I've got my focus. I'm going to carve out, you know, every other weekend and just, you know, put a bunch down on the page. You know, the, the book was nagging me. It was, it made me unproductive in anything else I was doing because it was this, uh, overwhelming feeling that I needed to get this book out of my system. Mm -hmm. And so I literally, I left, uh, the company vacations to go. Um, and I wasn't doing anything else. I, I had, um, 18 months where I did nothing else but write this book. You know, I'm not a quick writer. You know, some writers can, they, they can sit down for three months, four yeah. months, crank out a book, you know, um, this book was so intimate and personal. I had to do a lot of self-discovery about myself. I had to educate myself on, you know, some of the emotions that came up as I was writing the book. And I'm like, why am I feeling this way? Where did this come from? And I learned so much about myself during the process of writing the book. I didn't even know why I was writing the book when I started writing it. I just knew it had to be done mm -hmm. because it was just, you know, it would keep me up at night. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go to sleep. You know, I felt like I had to, you know, get a lot of stuff off my chest. And um, it ended up being a way to really figure myself out. And so, you know, taking that 18 months off to do it, in that time, I grew more than I probably had grown in the previous, you know, 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I'm definitely grateful I had, you know, first of all, enough money to take that time off and do mm -hmm. that. Um, and, and the time to do it, you know, I, I don't know how some other authors get their books written yeah, yeah. while they're, you know, parents and they're working a full-time job and, you know, they have all kinds of stuff going on. I don't know how to do it. Um, I have my second book is, is, is going to be coming out in 2019. Um, and that's been a lot more difficult to write because I've been so busy with mm -hmm. other things. Um, but I am excited about that too. Talk a little about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, my second book is called Make America Great, A Nonpartisan Guide. Um, and so, you know, not getting into any type of partisan politics whatsoever, but, um, you know, just seven recommendations on what we as Americans need to focus on if we truly want to make this country the best that it can be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it goes back to, you know, education you know, making sure we're educating ourselves and taking it upon ourselves to uh, be responsible for our individual growth and education. It's about loving each other. Um, it's about taking account of our health. Um, and, and, and I say all of this because as a director of economic development now, there's economic development and then there's sustainable economic development which the two can be unrelated in many ways. You know, economic development is about creating jobs for people. Sustainable economic development is about creating futures where our children and our children's children can exist and be prosperous. And so sustainable economic development, um, there's more of a responsibility to develop things that don't pollute our environments, um, that provide opportunities, not just for the foreseeable, you know, 10 years, 20 years, but 
infinitely mm-hmm. um, that can exist and you know create money and opportunity for generations that we can't even see yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, sustainable economic development is something I'm very passionate about, and I think kind of separates me from a lot of people that are in my field. Um, yeah, it's I I love that contrast that you draw there <clears throat> because I. Not knowing all that much about economic development, obviously we have you know, an idea, mm-hmm. um, but being able to draw that contrast and being able to pull out the nuances of saying, hey, look, there's, there's economic development and there's sustainable economic right. development. And sustainable economic development is talking about generational. Yes. Um, and, and having a positive impact. And also, I think, more of a holistic view, meaning you, you have... All you're, you're even taking into trying to take into account um, unintended consequences. Right. Where economic development is like, no, look, we're just gonna uh, you know blaze this path forward. Whatever happens, happens. But we created jobs along the way. We made a bunch of dang money. Exactly. Uh, and sustainable economic development is trying to do that, but maybe being a little bit more careful about it. Yeah, yeah the sustainable economic development needs to be on the mind of every single American right mm-hmm. now. And and the reason why is because. What people need to understand is we have a very short amount of time in order to ensure the existence of the human race. This is a very pivotal time in our existence. Literally within the next 20 years or so, if we do not figure out a way to, first of all, curb climate change, mm-hmm. we've at the, we're at the point now, we've increased the Earth's average temperature by one degree Celsius. And a lot of people say, oh, one degree, so what, big deal? Well, one degree Celsius is 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit, approximately. So that means all the areas around the world where it was previously frozen at 32 degrees mm-hmm. of Fahrenheit are, me- are now melting. Mm-hmm. So what this means is our coastal cities will vanish in a very short amount of time, less than 100 years mm-hmm. from now. If we don't get this solved by 2030, that's only 12 years from now, 11 years next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a long time from now. Yeah. Our coastal cities, New York, L.A., Miami, and Houston will cease to exist mm-hmm. unless we figure out this problem immediately. Yeah. Um, sustainable economic development is about how we responsibly raise our food, You know, our food supply. Right now, what we're doing... The majority of global warming is not caused by transportation, you know, which is a common misconception is that, you know, our cars and trains and planes are putting CO2 in the atmosphere, which is correct. But that's not the primary reason why we have global warming. Primary reason is because we irresponsibly raise too much cattle, uh, you know, because we have in the Western world. And in the developed world, we've developed an appetite for meat that is unnatural. Mm. And so uh, the methane emissions that come from raising these animals is putting methane into the atmosphere, which methane, even though it's not the largest, most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, retains heat at four times the rate of carbon dioxide. So much less methane needs to go into the atmosphere to warm the planet. Mm -hmm. And methane warms the planet at a much faster rate than anything else. Um, So we have to look at sustainable food supply. Mm -hmm. 
even on uh, the vegetable side, what we've been doing with vegetables is using synthetic fertilizer to grow our crops. And this synthetic fertilizer is the runoff from it is getting into our groundwater supply. It's destroying our water supply. There are going to be water shortages. So no matter what you eat, we're destroying our planet and we're, we're not creating sustainable environments for us to thrive as human beings right now. Um, and so you pair that with, okay, well, how do we keep everyone employed? How do we keep everyone healthy? How do we keep the planet alive? That's the biggest challenge of our time on this earth as human beings. Mm -hmm. And that's why my job is so important and I'm so passionate about it. Do you have a Superman thing on your, <laughs> your, uh, your shirt there? No, I... You have to keep those things in in mind. You and and you, not only just in mind. I mean that's that's an understatement. Uh, but all of those things are obvious issues. And I mean I, I think if if someone disagrees, I think they might be hiding under a rock at some point. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. I, I think I don't want to get too much into it because I want to potentially have another podcast about this because okay. this is incredibly fascinating. I think there's so much to dig into and the listeners can't, can't see it, but like the, your, your passion and like the, the emotion I think too is being revealed in you and you're like, God, I mean, this is, this is a huge, huge issue. It's something that I imagine you wake up every single day like, yeah, man, this is incredibly important. I don't need a cup of coffee. I need, I'm ready to go. <laughs> every day, um, every day. Yeah. So I, I would like to put a bow on that because it is, I think we could quadruple the amount of this podcast if, <laughs> if we, if we kept talking about it. Right. Um, I do want to circle back though and put a bow on, um, your autobiography. Yes, sir. Uh, if people want to check it out. If people want to buy it, people want to read it, how do they get it? Okay. Where do they uh, go? You can go to Amazon.com uh, to purchase it. You can go to BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, there may be some copies still floating around in stores mm -hmm. here in the Houston area. I know most of the Barnes & Nobles here uh, carried the book. Um, I haven't uh, followed up to check and see if anyone needs new shipments, uh, which I've just been so busy and tied up. I, I, I've neglected to do that. Um, but it was in stores here in Houston and, and the surrounding areas. Um, but you can definitely get it on Amazon right now. Did, now, did you self-publish? I did. Okay. I did. I started a publishing company. I was just going to ask, yeah. Uh, and the reason I did that, I looked at shopping book deals and, you know, some of the offers, you know, about five grand or so. Um, and then you don't make another dollar until mm. the publishing company recoups all of its investment. And you're still responsible for marketing and promoting the book yourself. So if I'm going to market and promote the book myself, why not make 10 to $15 per book sold versus, you know, getting the 5K up front and not making anything. Mm -hmm. And then after I surpass the 5K book advance, I might get a dollar per book sold. It didn't make any sense economically. Um, you know, starting your own publishing company, you purchase your ISBN numbers from the government and you're in business. You know, it's that simple. Um, you find a book distributor. I recommend for first-time authors Ingram. Ingram is the largest book distributor in the country. They can get your book in stores with Barnes & Noble. Um, they can get your book online, all of the major outlets. Um, I, rec I strongly recommend going through them, and they made the process very easy. You know, my book sits on the same shelf as, you know, Michelle Alexander. She's a, another Vanderbilt author, and she wrote The New Jim Crow. Mm. My book was side-by-side -side with her book. 
you know, she went through a major publisher. I self-published. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's incredible. Talk about the name of the publishing company. Because, Ca- yeah, there's a little story yeah. behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Capitalize the B Publishing, um, the, the, the name comes from the fact that when you see black people written in any major publication through the AP uh, media, it's always written in a lowercase, which is grammatically incorrect. And so I actually had petitioned for this to be changed because anytime you refer to a group of people, a specific group of people, it should always be capitalized. Mm-hmm. If you refer to Latino people, you will use a capital L or Asian people as a capital A. Um, it doesn't make any sense why, you know, black people or white people mm-hmm. uh, is denoted with a lowercase uh, letter. That just means it's a color, you know, and... And no one's really actually black or white. You know, it's a <laughs> culture, you know, it's a culture of people who right, identify right. Um, through certain shared traits. And so, um, you know, I've actually petin- petitioned the Associated Press to have that rule changed. Yeah. And it's gone, unfortunately, it's gone nowhere, you know, even though myself and several other um, English professors across the country have tried to get that reversed. Um, so I did publish my book under the, the, the capitalized the B umbrella and Black people is always spelled with a capital B anytime I write. Mm-hmm. So, I love it. There's you're always so a story, incredible. always a story <laughs> behind behind what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. All right, I want to be mindful of your time, but we do have some Everson Cooper like frequently asked questions mm-hmm. of just you know some silly stuff that you know, just just drives your curiosity. And so one of them, and actually, so while we're on the books topic, um. It, and clearly, we like we like to read. Um, talk about some of the books that you still keep today, or books that you're reading now, or books that you know you read back at your time at Vanderbilt or Taft or whatever mm-hmm. growing up that that stay with you that have amazing impact in your life. You know, I constantly consume books. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I think people make is underestimating how much you need to self-educate. Um, after college, most people are so burnt out that they're like, man, if I don't have to read another book ever again, I'm good. Recent surveys have shown that the average American adult has not read a book in the past five years. That's incredible. It's, oh, it's yeah. extremely dangerous. Whoa. We constantly have to be in pursuit of new knowledge. And so uh, what I do is uh, I have an Amazon Audible subscription. Um, which for $16 a month, you know, you get a book of your choice. Um, you know, you can purchase other books, you know, in addition to that fee if you, if you like. Um, what I've done to, to be economical with my book consumption, because I go through a book a week now, is I downloaded the Libby app. The Libby app, how do you spell that? L-I-B-B-Y, okay. allows you to uh, take out books from the public library ebooks as well as audiobooks for free, 100% free. So you really don't have any excuse as an adult not to be consuming new information on a daily basis, especially if you live in the Houston area. Our commutes are on average 25 minutes or more. We have some of the longest commute times in the nation. And during that 25 to 30 minutes that you're commuting, you can get through a chapter of a book mm-hmm. every day. Yep. You know, to and from work or to and from wherever you're going. Um, Right now, I'm reading a book uh, or listening to a book, rather, called Fast and Slow. 
It's written by um, a Nobel Prize winner, and it's really about the psychology of why we make the business decisions that we do and understanding why we do that. Um, so many books have influenced me. Um, the Age of Sustainable Development, you know, Jeffrey Sachs, another economist, um, you know, and this is where I formulated a lot of my opinions on sustainable economic development. Um, Super Crunchers, another great book. It's about data mining and being able to look at historical data. Um, this is why Amazon and Google are so dominant right now, because they analyze and they randomize their testing of what people look at and what they want to buy. Um, this is how movies are being made right now. This is how music is being made now. You look at a linear regression of what people liked previously, their buying habits and behaviors, how they responded to material that was put out previously, and you can predict the future of what they're going to want. And so understanding that this is how our world operates now in 2018, 2019, and beyond, you know, it really informs um, our decision-making. So you, you, you constantly have to grow, evolve, and adapt as an adult because if you don't, this, the, the minute you stop learning, your brain starts to die. Mm -hmm. It literally starts to die. If you're not creating new synapses between your neurons in your brain, your brain is dying if you're not consuming new information. Talking about people. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, we all have you know, people that we look towards, um, not necessarily as, as idols, but, but you know, role models. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I like to ask this question in a way... Not just not just role models because I think you can kind of like take them and, and crystallize them. I mean, like for me, like Michael Jordan is a role model. Right. Not necessarily I want to like be emulate my life after him. You know, I, right. I wanted to you know jump high and dunk like him. Didn't really work. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, so so people in your life, people as you were growing up or even now, um, people that are living out or at least living a part of the, of the version of your definition of success. And everyone's definition is, is different. Right. And, um, and, I, and I do actually do want to share this. Um, one of our previous uh, podcast guests, uh, Barry Blanton, and help me with this because now it's escaping me, but he had the most amazing definition of what success is. I think it was, it was being, being comfortable with who you are um, and, and always doing something, you know, good and positive, you know, in mm -hmm. your life and in the life of other people. And he, I think he said, if you can do those two things at that point, I mean, whether how, how much money you have in the bank, what kind of car you drive, you know, what kind of house you live in, whatever. But as long as you are happy with who you are and what you're doing and you're doing good things for other people, like that's, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't even know if he shared like actual people, but he, his definition of success was amazing. So um, if, yeah. if you have, you know, your unique definition of success, or if you just have some people that kind of like, man, yeah, these, these couple people, you put them together, boom, that's, that's what I look at as successful. You know, all people are flawed. So, mm -hmm. you know, my view of success is being at peace by doing no harm and creating a safe enough environment for future generations to grow and thrive. You know, that's how I would define success. Um, a big part of how I live my life is do no harm. You know, every decision you make, every single decision you make, when you decide what you wear, when you decide what you buy, when you decide what you eat, has a consequence for somebody on the other end mm -hmm. or something. Um, if you live by the motto of do no harm, 
I think we as human beings will first and foremost be able to survive, you know, um, infinitely into the future. Um, currently, we don't all subscribe to that motto. And it's unfortunate because we look at what we're doing to our planet right now. You know, we're trashing our planet right now. People wonder whether or not extraterrestrials have ever existed. You know, a lot of people say they probably just speed right by us if they, you know, ever had a chance to look at what we're doing. <laughs> and I wouldn't blame them, you know, because we look at our ocean right now. The ocean's full of plastic. Um, we look at our planet. We're literally boiling ourselves to death rapidly. <laughs> you know, this is the, 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 the amount of years that it would typically take for the planet to have this type of temperature cycles, you know, on a span of three to four million years, we're doing it in less than 150. Um, so we're boiling ourselves alive. We're killing ourselves with garbage and trash. And this is because we haven't adopted the motto of doing no harm. Do no harm to anybody, to anything, especially to the planet. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can live by that and abide by that and uh, be concerned with the health of future generations that you cannot see at the present moment, I think that's a true definition of success and be at peace with doing that. I love it. That's incredible. Yeah, I love it. <clears throat> All right, last one. This is probably the probably the most interesting question, I think, when, when I ask people, or like, people kind of do this, they lean back and like, oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so there's a book, uh, it's called uh, The Power of When, W-H-E-N, mm -hmm. and it, you know, talking about, it talks about your chronotype. And, right. you know, everyone is a little bit different. It's just like people's diet, people, you know, how your sleep patterns and all that stuff. Everyone's just a little bit different. So, um, what, so basically there's, there's four different types of chronotypes. There's uh, a lion, there's a bear, there's, um, a wolf and a dolphin. Mm -hmm. And the lion is up early, you know, morning person, ready to get after it. Uh, a bear a little bit later in the day, you know, maybe likes to sleep in, but still productive in the, you know, the first part of the day. Owl, or, uh, yeah, no, what, wolf. I don't know why I say owl. Well, say <laughs> wolf. Wolf is, you know, late night, but they're still, like, being productive. And then a dolphin is just all over the place. Mm -hmm. So with that kind of profile, what would you characterize yourself as? You know, I've always viewed myself as a wolf, uh, a lone wolf many times, um, you know, and I think that's um, maybe frustrated some of my closest friends and family because, you know, I get these really passionate, large ideas and I'll go off on my own mm -hmm. and try to make them come to fruition, whether or not people agree with me or not. Mm -hmm. And I'll stay up late nights mm -hmm. and, you know, I get very little sleep. I, I probably average about four or five hours of sleep right now, which I know ultimately is unsustainable and I need to correct that, but there's just so many big issues that really, um, really just, just keep me motivated to, to stay awake mm -hmm. and um, in pursuit of goals that some people disagree with, some people don't see the point of yet, um, but, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with being that wolf, you know. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, anything else? No, we are so grateful that you're here and spending all your time yeah. with us tonight. And uh, this has been amazing. We both have 
pages full of <laughs> notes from the wonderful things that you said and shared. So thank you for being here and sharing your words and your wisdom and your story with everybody. We're, we really appreciate it. You know, happy to be here. Thank you guys for even taking the time to listen to me because, uh, yeah, a lot of people who wouldn't have the type of patience to sit down and really, you know, figure out what's on my mind and why I view the world the way that I do. Um, also, uh, I don't know if I can mention the, you know, thank you for the, the maker's mark <laughs> for the, yeah, for the spirit's libation. Yes. Yes. We aim, please. Yes. Yes. Definitely allowed me to, you know, uh, put together my words yeah, and, yeah. and flow a little bit uh, from the heart. So I appreciate that. Before we let you go, if people want to connect with you, yeah. they want to follow, man, what is Demetrius up to? Dude is, is all over the place. If they want to, you know, connect with you and, um, you know, collaborate with you or whatever. How can they find you? How can they get a hold of you? They can find me at my website, DemetriusWalker.com. Uh, that's D-E-M-E-T-R-I-U-S, Walker.com. I think everyone knows how to spell Walker. <laughs> they can connect with me on Instagram. Well, I have two different Instagram pages. Um, one is Vote for Meek. Um, that's one. Um, I did... Uh, run for office, uh, namely to get some of these ideas out to the general mm-hmm. public. That was my primary mo- primary motive in doing that. Uh, Meekonomics is the other um, Instagram page that you can find me on. Um, Facebook.com forward slash The Real Meek. And for those of you wondering why Meek keeps coming up, uh, it's been my nickname since birth. My grandmother refused to call me Demetrius because she said my name was way too long. And so she assigned me Meek, and it just kind of stuck since birth. A lot of my friends and family don't know my real name. Um, I go by Go DJ Meek, and uh, actually I'm going to be DJing this evening. So wow. Yeah, I'm going to be, let me check the time because I got to get down to the A-loft <laughs> by the Houston Galleria um, to go DJ this evening. And that's Meek, M-E-E-K? Yes, Okay. M-E-E-K. All right. So Meekonomics, um, vote for Meek, and Facebook.com slash Meek? The real Meek. The real Meek. The real Meek. Facebook.com slash Meek. There's some fake ones out there, yeah. 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 Awesome. Anything else before before we wrap it up? Do no harm, people. Do no harm. (laughs) Figure out a way to make profit and do no harm. That's it. Awesome. Demetrius, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both.